You're tuned in to 90.7 FM KALX Berkeley. My name is Tesla Munson, and this is The Graduates, the talk show where we interview UC Berkeley graduate students about their work here on campus. Today I'm joined by musicologist Kirsten Page from the Department of Music. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Okay. Yeah, no, thanks for thanks for being here. Um, it is a Department of Music, right? Or is it a different department? Right, yeah, the Department of Music, and we have three different graduate programs. We have Music History and Literature, which is what I do. We've got ethnomusicologists who mostly study non-Western music, and then we have composers. Okay, so everything you do kind of falls under the Western, yeah, Western thing. Yeah, uh, and I know you have a focus in German in particular. Yeah, I focus on nineteenth-century German music, uh, which is something that's really, really strong in our faculty here. So, I, some one of my friends asked me to ask you first of all, who are your top German composers? Just to start everything <laughs> off. Well, I mostly study Wagner. So he's sort of my number one guy. But others, I mean, later people like like Mahler, I absolutely love. And I mean, I really, it's hard for me to answer questions like that because I don't really have any like composers I don't like. I enjoy listening to just about anything because I think you can learn from all, like any, any composer, anybody's music. Okay, so um, a lover, not a fighter. Exactly. <laughs> nice. But it's not just about music, right? You come from a background of music. You play an instrument, correct? Yeah. So um, I think that my background isn't that unusual for people coming into my field. I started off studying uh, studying double bass pretty seriously. So a lot of people who come into music history study an instrument before going into the, the academic side of music. So I studied bass uh, from when I was 10. And then I started at Juilliard's pre-college program when I was about 12. I did that for about five years. And when I was there, I was exposed to a lot of music that I wouldn't probably wouldn't have really known about otherwise, and also started getting into opera because I had a teacher who played at the Metropolitan Opera when I was a student at, at Juilliard. So he um, started exposing me to opera a lot, and that's how I got interested in it. And um, then from from there, I decided that I wanted to start to explore the historical sides side of music because you know I just loved listening to it up until that point, but I wanted to deepen my knowledge. So I chose the University of Chicago for undergrad because I knew that they had a really great music music department. And so I knew right away that's what I wanted to major in. And then when I got there, I learned that they have one of the most famous opera scholars in the world on their faculty. And so starting from the very beginning of my time in Chicago, I started studying Italian opera with, uh, with this particular professor, um, Phil Gossett. And then towards the end, I started getting into German music a little bit and did so I did I did an undergraduate thesis on Italian opera and I also did a sort of a smaller project on German music while I was there too and then after that um, I went to Cambridge to do a master's and also continuing to study opera while I was there and that was a great year it was just a year it was really fabulous and then Berkeley was always my first choice for PhD when I was at Chicago one of my professors was a, a postdoc who went to Berkeley, and I was really, really impressed by him, and he talked to me a little bit about Berkeley when I asked him about it, and I realized that they have, we have one of the best faculties for 19th century music, so it was always the place I wanted to go, and when I got in, I was really, really excited and knew I wanted to come here, so it's been, like, it's been absolutely amazing. The faculty is great. The students are super smart, really, really fantastic to, to learn from, so it's been, like, the best experience I could ask for for a PhD program in my field. That's that is definitely nice to hear. Okay, so that pretty much brings us up to speed in terms of where you are. But just a couple of quick questions: Is there a difference between a bass and a double bass? Is that because I, you know, I don't know much about those kind of instruments. Yeah, it's the same. 
It's the same instrument. Oh. The the bass or the double bass can go by a lot of different names, and those are two of them. You can also call it the contrabass, but it's all referring to the same instrument. Okay, that's yeah. good to know. <laughs> and then also, you know, you mentioned opera. When I think of opera, of course, as a layman, I just think of singing, but you must not be talking about the singing side of things. Well, I study I study issues having to do with historical performance, so with singing. I also study issues having to do with the actual text that are being sung and with staging a little bit and with uh, with like deeper historical issues having to do with the semiotics of these texts and the sort of latent symbolism within the music itself. So there's a lot of different avenues for entry into studying opera. And that's one reason why it's so so interesting to work on because there's so many different things you can you can study. Um, it's yeah, so it's not it's not just studying one thing. Is Wagner primarily opera? I don't know much about him as a composer. Yeah, he he wrote a little bit of music that is an opera, but he mostly just mostly just wrote opera. So I study well up until this point, I've mostly just studied his music, starting from his romantic operas, which were written in the 1840s, through the end of his life. So the last 40 or so years of his life, and I initially became interested in, in studying him just because I. I had the sort of experience with his music that I think he wanted people to have, which was just being like inundated by it and really feeling just enveloped by the experience of listening to it and just like feeling the music inside of you. And even even now, I just I really just enjoy spending time listening to it, even when I'm not studying it. I think it's a good thing when you can just like really love love your field. So you said up until this point, what what year are you in your program? I just finished year two. Year two, okay. And the German that's part of the PhD requirement. You mean the, the language? Or? Yeah, the language. Yeah, so um, we mostly just have reading or re- reading requirements, and it's obviously really, really good to become fluent in the language of you know the the national idiom that you're really working on. So that's something that I'm working on now. But we have language requirements; we have to pass two reading tests. So German was one of mine, and the other one was Latin, which is useful in, in certain ways, even if you're studying music in the 19th century. You know, I found ways to make Latin useful. So those were the two that I chose. But yeah, we're, we're expected to be able to read primary source documents in, you know, in German and ideally in other languages too. And what other requirements do you have? You have a dissertation, I presume, but yeah. are there any other requirements? Um, we have some course requirements. So when you first come in, you take a course on sort of the, the history of the discipline. Um, so you get acquainted with the big issues that people have been dealing with since the discipline sort of more or less formally began. And uh, we take that with one of the two most senior members of our faculty. So I was lucky to take it with Richard Taruskin, who's one of our, um, probably our most senior member of our faculty. And so everybody does that. And then we also have a sort of analogous course that we do in ethnomusicology. So we do that with Bonnie Wade, who's another senior member of the faculty, and we deal with like big issues in ethnomusicology, which are completely different in a lot of cases from the musicological issues. So those are our two biggest requirements. And then we also have to take seminars within the department. So there are a few things, different things offered each year. So at this point, I basically finished my coursework. And because I came in with a master's, I had a little bit sort of a lesser requirement in terms of courses. And then besides that, we have a, t- a teaching pedagogy class that everybody has to do if you're a grad student. And then you start teaching in year two. So I just finished my first year of teaching. And what did you teach? I taught Music 27, which is Intro to Western Music. So I had two sections. I had like 60 undergrads to teach total, fall semester. And then spring semester, I taught uh, Music 20A, which is basic musicianship. So I just had one section of 36 undergrads for that. 
So those two classes presented different different challenges, but I was really impressed by the undergrads. They were really really smart and uh, really engaged, and I really really enjoyed it. I think I'm looking forward to teaching more next year for sure. Great. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to 90.7 FM KALX Berkeley. My name is Tesla Munson, and you're listening to The Graduates, the interview talk show where I speak with graduate students about their work here at UC Berkeley. Today, I'm joined by music historian Kirsten Page. Uh, let's uh, let's talk about what you're doing now for your dissertation work. You mentioned some really interesting projects you've got going on. So let's start off with the showmanship thing. You mentioned that Wagner has his own or he had his own production sort of fair yeah, he founded his own festival in a small town in Bavaria in 1876. And I've been working on studying the technologies that he developed for that festival. And there's been some work done. There's been tons of work done on Wagner, I should mention. He's one of the most written about composers. So it's always a bit of a challenge to find your way through all of that scholarship. But one thing that's becoming very popular right now in my field is to write about music and tech. So I've been writing about the technologies he developed for that festival. And I've also been writing about the technologies that were generally like surrounding the festival that he that sort of fit into his plan, whether or not he necessarily meant for them to or not. So one of those technologies was actually the railroad technologies of the time. So I found out just by looking at images of railroads from that period that people were actually often taking their railway trips to his festival and around Germany generally in these open cars. So some of the cars were open, some of them are closed, but the ones towards the front, it seems, were actually open, which seems very strange because people were writing that they were being hit by, like, steam and acid and things. But people were saying that in these, you know, primary sources on, on the railroads that they actually saw these trains as being a way of communing with nature, even though it was the symbol of industrialism, which I thought was a really interesting, almost ideological paradox that they seemed to recognize but almost revel in the fact that they could be closer to nature. And they describe the trains as like wandering through the forest, which is like a romantic, really romantic term to use the word wandering, but they would say these trains were wandering through the forests, which I thought was really, really interesting. But I've been studying how the different technologies Wagner used sort of were crossing this line between naturalism and industrialism and sort of being in between simultaneously. So besides the train tech, I also was looking into... um, the steam technology that he developed for his festival house. And this has been studied a little bit before, but the way that I've been studying it basically is the way in which he like actually had steam locomotives attached to his opera house and the steam would be piped into the, the theater. So in certain moments in his operas there would be steam like you know on stage and people would be breathing in the steam. And what struck me most about this, which is sort of related to the, the railway stuff, is that it really would mediate the way that people breathed. So they would be breathing in the steam, and he was actually controlling the way that people's bodies were like functioning almost. You, you know, they were just being inundated with the air that he created. So he was actually creating a new environment for them. So that's another piece of tech that I've been studying. Have they recreated this sort of experience now? Can you go to see Wagner and, and inhale steam at the same time, or...? Well, um, his productions were mandated to be exactly as they were throughout his life. Um, he refused to change really very much of anything and also didn't want his operas up until at a certain point of his life. He didn't want his operas to be performed anywhere except for his festival house because he wanted to be in control of how they were performed. But starting around the beginning of the 20th century, things started to change because he had died and his wife wasn't really involved anymore. And so things started to change. And I'm not 
sure exactly about the steam tech. I know that they were still using the locomotives in the 1950s. So there's a picture um, that I've seen of, of the steam locomotives, and it said that it was the same one they were using in 1888, and it was 1952. So they were yeah. still using it pretty late. So there are probably much safer ways now that they're using to produce these effects in the opera houses that, that want to produce the effects that Wagner wanted. But at least in Europe, it's really in vogue now to make to, to create much more like you know shocking productions and making them more politically relevant to today. So people do lots of lots of things that Wagner probably wouldn't have necessarily wanted with his operas. So they're not really the way that they used to be so much. But for a long time they were, and he really didn't want things to change. But, um, you know, there's not much he can do about it now. Yeah. I don't know why I've been buying tickets for Disneyland when I could go see this more elevated version of uh, entertainment. Man. Yeah. Uh, so, okay, and you mentioned there were other tech things you were studying as well? or Yeah, so those were the two main ones that I've been interested in with respect to Bayreuth, which is where his festival was. But other sort of less, maybe less flashy examples that do sort of, did sort of the same thing was, um, you know, I, I was reading that the, actually the costumes that he designed for one of his operas for Parsifal, which was his last opera, he designed these costumes for his flower maidens in this one scene that actually had them be um, like covered in flowers. So they were literally covered in flowers. And some people were writing that when they went to went to see this this production, they were being like inundated with these smells from the stage. And this was just another way that he was mediating the air that they're breathing and their experience within this like this little chamber that he had created for them. So it's sort of a different type of tech, flowers and costumes, but it's sort of within the same category. Yeah, so I think that sort of is what I've been working on mostly with with the tech aspects, but I'd really like to continue down that road and find out more about the history of technology with respect to Wagner's work. And the flowers, that sort of brings us into this idea of nature. I know you mentioned you're looking into that concept as well. Can you talk more about that? Yeah. So what I've been doing with nature is a little bit different. The project that I've been working on lately that has to do with these natural tropes has to do more with uh, semiotics of his texts. So it's a little bit it's a little bit less like less friendly to general audiences in a certain sense. So this is more of like a very Wagner heavy paper. So this particular work is on birdsong tropes in this one particular opera of his. So I've been working on, it's basically a paper on uh, Die Meistersinger, which is an opera that he wrote in 1868. And I'm studying this one particular scene, the song trial scene. And this is a scene that's been studied for a very, very long time. And it's been contentious since like the 1930s, because basically Theodore Adorno started made this reference to the scene in one of his essays and said that he thought this was a very anti-Semitic scene. And he said that the source that he saw for this scene was a particular anti-Semitic folk story by the Grimm brothers. There wasn't really any evidence for that reading. And he didn't say that this was the source. He just said it sort of reminded him of that story. And a lot of people in more recent years have sort of run with that interpretation, even though there really isn't any evidence for it, and have tried to find any evidence that they can, even though there isn't that much. So what I've decided to do is, I, I looked back at that scene, and I noticed that what's really remarkable about it is the text that this very German character is performing for the, the Guild of Master Singers references birds. And I was interested in figuring out how those bird images relate to this, this thornbush image, which is the one that Adorno picked up on and said was related to this folk story. So what I found is that the two birds that he references are the nightingale and the owl. And the nightingale is like a very is, is a very popular romantic trope for the ideal German singer. So he basically 
implies that he's the nightingale, which makes a lot of sense. But the interesting thing then is the owl, which isn't something I've really seen written about too much in music literature. So what I wanted to investigate is whether the owl was an anti-Semitic symbol, because the character he's sort of singing to and is being judged by is an anti-Semitic caricature, basically, Beckmesser. So what I found is that the owl really is this is this uh, anti-Semitic symbol, and happens to often be said to like live in the thorn bush. So that's where that symbol comes from. It's not from this Grimm story, probably. So what's interesting there is that in a lot of these um, adaptations of the nightingale owl, th- that that binary in 19th century literature, a lot of times that's sort of an aesthetic binary. And so um, my reading is basically that Wagner might have taken that aesthetic binary from 19th century poetry and sort of implanted it into this scene in order to show that there's this German singer who's set up this aesthetic binary between himself and the, his judge, who's an anti-Semitic character, and sort of placed this aesthetic binary within the binary of their relationship. So it's sort of an embedded scene that parallels what's actually going on on stage, which is really interesting. And so that's sort of like a deep reading of this scene that hasn't really been done before and capitalizes on the birdsong trope, which is really, really popular in romantic literature generally. And the interesting thing about it is that not very many people would have known about the Grimm story that has been cited in the past, but it looks like a lot of people in the 19th century would have really known about this owl nightingale thing. It was really, really popular, and it came up all the time in like proverbs and in poems. It was everywhere. So it seems fairly likely that people would have understood that symbolism, and they wouldn't have understood like the Grimm thing that was uh, cited before. So that's where some of my interest in natural romantic tropes has sort of that, that's sort of one way that I've been uh, studying it. But in a sort of broader sense, I've just been interested in understanding how Wagner related to the natural world in a more general context. So I've been thinking that for my dissertation, I might want to study environmental thought in the 19th century and how what that meant to Wagner. So I think that it's pretty easy to say what you think an environmentalist is um, in our in our context. But in the 19th century, trying to figure out what that meant at that time and how Wagner related to that idea. You know, I haven't really developed my dissertation too much yet. It's going to be coming in the next couple of years, but I'd like to see how I can relate the idea of green thought in the 19th century to his operas and to this technological, the technological issues with his theater and just see how it played out in, in his life more generally. And how do you, what's your method of research? You mentioned some photographs. Is it it's mostly digging through historical texts or? Yeah, it's mostly digging through primary source documents. So I study, Wagner is another interesting one if you're interested in sources because he didn't just write his text in one go and the music in one go. He had lots and lots of drafts of different kinds. So he had sketches for the music and then he had a prose sketch for the actual text. He had a prose draft, which was different, and then the final version of the text. So he had he went through lots of different stages, and they were very sort of concrete stages. So studying each of those sources is interesting to see what his creative process was like. But when I'm trying to figure out when I try to figure out like semiotic issues, like the bird song stuff that I had mentioned, I tend to look a lot at 19th century primary source documents, like poetry, you know. Uh, essays on art and religion that were written at that time. And for this particular one, I was looking at anthologies of proverbs that were being published then, which I never really expected. I didn't I didn't expect to find that, but that was really really an interesting set of sources. And I look at like folk song anthologies sometimes. 
And then uh, I did find some there, – there's a great book on technology at, at Bayreuth, which I had used for this paper that I had written on that topic. And it did have some photographs from the 1950s of the technologies that were still being used from the 19th century. So that's where I found the picture of the locomotive that was really, really cool. And it also had um, a great diagram of the way that the uh, steam was actually like piped into the theater. So it had a little drawing of guys like um, with the steam valves, like turning the steam valves backstage. And it looked like they were like engulfed in flames. It looked horrible. But it really gives an insight into how far he was willing to go to get, to the, get these effects. And are those texts available here on campus? Are they online? Or where do you go to find that sort of thing? Um, well, I've found that... Um, a lot of my research ends up being facilitated tremendously by Google Books because a lot of these 19th century sources are available there, and it actually allows you to um, to search them really, really easily, even if they're in you know a, a print style that's kind of challenging to read. Google manages to read it and tell you what's there. Um, so that's really has facilitated my ability to find tons of different examples of terms or of tropes that I want to cite in my work. And we do have uh, a really tremendous music library, probably one of the best in the country. And they have a ton of great sources also to, to look at. So I've sort of used both. And a lot of the other students here have taken advantage of the resources that we have here in the library, the, like the various archives that are really unique to Berkeley. Like we have a great collection of early, I think it's early 19th century, sort of late 18th century Italian libretti. So we have a huge collection of those. And some of the students have looked at those. But we have like an, just an incredible, incredible library and great librarians to help out with all of that. So there's really, it's really easy to do historical research here. So you mentioned other music students. How is your department organized? Do you have, I mean, we have labs. Do you have like a group of people you sit with? Do they have similar interests? Or what are the, what's the range of range of topics you're covering with your nearby deskmates? Well, we don't really have we don't really have groups in that way. We don't have a really huge department, so most of the time, the students who are actually here and not working on dissertation research take seminars together. So we do spend a lot of time together, and because our department is so strong in the 19th century, we have a lot of students who work on 19th century topics. We do have some people working on 18th century topics too, mostly on opera, and then we have some people working on earlier music, like Baroque music, and. Uh, then we also we also have a few people working on on much later much later stuff working on like issues having to do with radio and television. So there is a pretty wide range. Although I think that there's a bit of a concentration in the 19th century just because our faculty is so strong in that area. And then in, on the ethnomusicology side, people are working on such a huge range of of topics. And then we also have some tremendous composers who give concerts on campus. Also, so I mean it's great because people are coming from lots of different perspectives and. I, I think that it's just invaluable to have time to spend with your colleagues because they end up informing your work in lots of different ways, even if they're not necessarily doing exactly what you do. And then we take in about, I think, like five five new students per year in each subfields, more or less. And yeah, it's just a great, great community. What And what do you want to do in the future? Uh, a PhD in music, history, and literature. What are you going to do with that? Well, um, I plan on becoming an academic. So I have about three years left, and then I'll, I'd like to start applying for postdocs and for permanent positions, and then just continue to work in 19th century German music, continue to work in Wagner's, on Wagner studies. So that's really my, my plan in terms of my research. Uh, and then there's, there's uh, some sort of burgeoning subfields in the 
in the field that I'd like to get into also. Like there's this field called ecomusicology. Tell me more, please. <laughs> ecomusicology is it's kind of new and there haven't been a ton of historical t- um, historical studies within this field yet. And I'd like to be somebody who does that. But a lot of times these studies uh, have a lot to do with relating music to current current political and environmental issues. And uh, sometimes I find those studies are a bit of a stretch to, to find those connections. But I'd like to broaden that sub subfield a little bit and find ways of uh, making historical issues more relevant and not just talking about, you know, how can we make Beethoven relevant to, like, global warming or something, but say, okay, what does environmentalism, for instance, mean in the 19th century? And make that more, more of a, an issue that people are interested in instead of just trying to be politically relevant. So that's something that I'd like to, I'd like to pursue. Then, yeah, besides that, I'm just, just interested in pursuing, continuing to pursue, to pursue teaching. So being at a school where I can teach great undergrads and uh, have a great um, community of people just to continue to learn from. You mentioned uh, people and interest and also composers here on campus. How can people and the general public get involved with the music department? There are performances here on campus? Yeah, there are performances on a regular basis um, in Hertz Hall. There's always something going on. We also have noontime concerts in the department during during the semesters, so during the actual academic year, and all of that's open to the public. And then if anybody's interested in actually coming to hear like academic talks, we have a colloquium series. So there's a colloquium series for music history and ethno, so we do that together, and that's almost every week. And then the composers have their own colloquium series where they invite a composer from the outside to come and I think some of their music maybe is performed and and the composers are allowed to ask them questions about their methods. So it's all it's all really it's all really interesting, it's all open to the public and generally the concerts and the colloquia are free. So it's pretty easy to get involved if you want to. Nice, that sounds great. And what about students? How how can they does everyone need to start playing an instrument and go to Juilliard for five years to become a music PhD or are there other ways? You know, most people come in with an, a sense of what they want to study. But if that changes while you're here, that's completely fine. And most people come in usually having played an instrument, but that's not always the case. Uh, some people come in actually with a performance degree. So I did music history as an undergrad, but some people come in having done like trombone performance as an undergrad, and they still do great. So lots of different backgrounds are relevant. And I would think that if you came in with an interest in music and knowledge about music, but maybe coming from a different humanities field, that would be that would be okay too, because music is um, studying music is inherently such an interdisciplinary thing that you know coming from English or something would would be completely fine. So we have all sorts of backgrounds in our department. Um, I think that mine is is sort of typical in the sense that I came from having played an instrument, but everybody comes from somewhere different, and people all find their way because our department is just so varied and so open to you know helping you develop as a student. And do you interact with undergrads outside of teaching or are they involved in all in your in your career here? Sometimes we have music undergrads taking taking our classes. Uh, it doesn't happen too much. I think the more advanced music undergrads sometimes enroll in some of the music uh, grad classes and that's always really great to get their perspectives. Music undergrads or undergrads generally are involved with performance a lot on campus. So there's some amazing pianists amongst the undergrads who give performances, and uh, they play in the orchestras and all of that. Generally, I am involved with them just in terms of teaching, but I think that definitely some of the students who are more involved with performance uh, have have more contact with the undergrads. 
great. Well, uh, I think that's just about wrapping it us wrapping it up for us here. Do you have any last words you want to tell the audience or? <laughs> I don't think so. Listen to more music. That yeah. might be. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much. Again, you've been listening to The Graduates here on 90.7 FM KALX Berkeley. My name is Tesla Munson, and I've been speaking with Kirsten Page, uh, musicologist, music historian here at UC Berkeley. She's been telling us about her work uh, studying Wagner and 19th century ecotech and all sorts of interesting things I never would have even considered before today. So thank you again for being here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll be back two weeks from today on Tuesday, July 15th to hear from biomechanist Dwight Springthorpe. Until then, stay tuned. You're listening to 90.7 FM KLX 